last semester, what we did is we went through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And his Sermon on the Mount is his most famous teaching. His teaching, what it looks like to live in the kingdom, what it looks like to serve in the kingdom. But it's basically Jesus' Sermon. And what I want to do this semester is look at Acts, which is the first book after the four Gospels. And it's where we actually begin to see God working in the hearts of the early Christian church in its infancy, this kingdom character that Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not exactly going to translate perfectly, but I do hope that what we see this semester is what it looks like to put legs and feet and hands on the teaching of Jesus we looked at last semester. So what I want to do is read Acts 1, 1 through 11, and then we'll pray. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have gathered us again. Uh, some of us for the first time, some of us for the 30th time. And we pray that wherever we are, Lord, that you'd meet us that you would convict us if that's what we need, that you would comfort us if that's what we need. And surely all of us need to be comforted. All of us need to be reminded of the hope that is offered to us freely in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see him, dig out for us ears to hear him, for unless you do that, we'll miss him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, January, you start to think about you take inventory where you are, what's going on in your life. And one of the things that we start to ask is, well, what, what does this past year look like? And where do I want to be this time next year? And I think that's one of the questions this passage is sort of implicitly asking. Where, where do you want to be a year from now? And where do you want to be five years from now? Ten years from now? Is, some of you want to be fully and finally free from your parents, out from under your parents, and some of you want to be in a relationship that's at least moving or could be moving to marriage. Some of you want to start to see the beginnings of success career-wise. You know, another way that you can think about this is where in your life do you see brokenness? Where is 
there incompletion in your life? Where is there longing in your life? And how would you like to see your life fixed? What would it look like for the brokenness in your life to no longer be broken, to be restored? Fill in the blank. If only this were different in my life, things would be better. If only this were different. One of the things that this passage is showing us is that Acts is concerned with our hopes. Acts is concerned with our dreams. More on that in a moment. First, Acts is such a weird name. Acts. And the full name, maybe some of your Bibles still say this, is the Acts of the Apostles. So it's, it's, the, it's the deeds, the actions of the Apostles. How did the teachings of the God-man, how did the teachings of Jesus turn into a global phenomenon? We watch the beginnings of that phenomenon unfold in the pages of Acts. Uh, we open Acts and we find the fall freshman semester of the New Testament church, as it were. There's so much ahead. There's so much excitement and hope and dreams. There's a, it's palpable. And right off the bat, we see that Jesus Christ is at the center of it all. And, and just a side note, side note, I know that even if you're a Christian, the idea of Jesus sometimes seems so abstract. What, what I'd like to remind you and present to you here, what RUF is all about, is that Jesus Christ is a person. Jesus Christ is not an idea. Jesus Christ is not a set of morals to be followed. Jesus Christ is a person that knows his people and whose people can know him. He's a person. And whatever the church is about, whatever Acts is about, whatever this passage is about, Jesus Christ is the very center of that. And so my prayer is that your experience would be that in RUF, you find that people are coming to know and be known by the person of Jesus Christ. That we're starting to identify with His work on our behalf. I hope that everything that we do in this community, in some way or another, points to Him. And that makes this community attractive. Luke is the author of Acts. Uh, this is sort of the sequel to his gospel. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then he writes Acts, Luke and Acts. And he addresses this letter or this, this, this book to Theophilus. A lot of ink has been spilled about who or what is Theophilus, but the word means friend of God, God lover, right? Think Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's wrapped in there. He's a friend of God. And so whoever this is, if he was a real person or not, if we would be considered a friend of God, we have to learn to relate to him in the same way that the New Testament church did. That is by faith. Trust him by faith, who he is by faith. And Luke gives us some interesting context in verse 1. Let me read that again. In the first book, Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what's the important bit of context that Luke wants us to know? Only all that Jesus began to do and teach. So not so much. Just all that he, that he did and taught. And so let's think about what Luke has in mind. And from this, this passage's perspective, I want to ask three questions. What has Jesus done? What is Jesus doing, and how is he misunderstood? What has Jesus done? 
Well, Luke sets the context for us in his gospel. So I read around in his gospel, and we see very clearly Jesus is God. The Christmas narrative, the one that Linus reads in Peanuts, is from Luke chapter 2. Luke wants us to know the Christmas story. God became man. And in Luke chapter 5, after healing a man who was paralyzed, he says to him, your sins are forgiven. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to heal, and he came to forgive sins. Who doesn't want to be healed and to have their sins forgiven? And the answer is apparently not everyone. And perhaps you've heard this story. Jesus' approval ratings were flying high for a little bit right before they plummeted, and he was nailed to a cross for treason on trumped-up charges. And all of this, Scripture tells us, was according to God's plan. He was nailed to a cross for our sins. He died an ignoble death, and then he's raised from the death. Not figuratively, literally raised from the dead. And verse 3 tells us, Jesus presented himself alive to the disciples after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now think about this. The book of Acts was probably written in the 60s of the first century. It is quoted by other books that we know were written in the first century. It's a very early document. Okay. On top of this, Luke mentions over 100 people by name. This is one of those passages that's it's kind of like 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of the first importance. It's kind of like how this book starts that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Tim Keller has helped me think through uh, passages like this. These were very early, publicly read documents. This is the authoritative teaching of the New Testament church, read publicly. Paul says there are eyewitnesses that are still alive. Luke says the same thing in Acts. If you're skeptical, ask them is the clear implication. But while both Acts and 1 Corinthians are early publicly read documents, neither of them were publicly exposed as a fraud. Who is this person? Who is this person? Who is this person? Who are the people who have died? There's no record of anyone sort of saying, this, these are fake names. These people didn't exist. Which you would expect if they were lying, if they were frauds. This information should be taken seriously. Is it, you know, airtight argument that this is God's Word? No, of course not. But it's, there's... There's no reason to, to doubt that if this book was written in the early 60s, quoted in the first century, naming people by names, and no one ever says Luke's lying, we ought to at least take what he says seriously. We ought to listen to him. And what I think, what, what he teaches in this book changes everything. Because should you accept this truth and build your life on this truth, this means that God will bring healing in your life and He will not hold your sins against you. 
And if you feel guilty about sins you have committed, if you have longing for healing in your life, then the person of Jesus Christ is who you ought to be looking for. John puts it this way, by, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. The Christian story is that we get to swap histories with Jesus. That our brokenness and our sins are placed on Jesus on the cross, and his perfect life record, his righteousness is given to us. We swap. His story becomes ours. Ours becomes his. And Peter says it this way, For Christ also suffered sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here's the point. If you don't feel righteous, if you don't feel perfect, if you feel like there's brokenness in your life, then you are in the right place in RUF because RUF is a place for people who are broken and need their sins to be forgiven. You see, biblical Christianity does not teach us how to get right with God. Biblical Christianity teaches us how Jesus Christ has made it right with God for us. And that's what I promise you will hear consistently in RUF. All of us are broken, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we realize it or not. And that's why Jesus comes. So point one, what has Jesus done? All that he said and did, what is that? Well, he changes everything by his life, his death, his resurrection. He came to make us whole. The second point, the second question, what is he doing? He's preparing to leave, but before he leaves, he promises to send his Holy Spirit. And that's a game changer. We're going to talk about that specifically next week. But then Jesus ascends up into the heavens. A cloud covers his view. And the point is not that heaven is up there. The point is that Jesus is leaving, and he does not intend for us to expect him to just sort of pop around the corner at any time. He's going to come back the same way that he left, it will be unmistakable. Everyone's going to see it. Everyone's going to know. You can't miss it. A few years ago, Melissa and I went on vacation in Ireland, which was awesome. This was before we had kids, um, and, and Charlotte was in utero. And when we went there, it ended up being like the one week that we happened to go was this crazy historic week. The Queen of England was going to be there on the front end. President Obama was going to be there on the back end. But the big news was the Queen. And so when the Queen comes, I mean, you, you realize like there's a lot of tension in Ireland between you know, Ireland and the Crown, Protestants, Catholics, that sort of thing. And so it was a big deal that the queen was going to come. And so we didn't even know about this. We landed and the queen was going to be there in a few hours. I was like, Melissa, we can't go to sleep. And she's like, but I'm so tired. We haven't slept in 35 hours. And it's true, we were incredibly jet lagged. I was like, no, absolutely not. I will never forgive myself if we miss this moment. And so we go and we stand and there's barricades and there's officers and there's people everywhere waiting for the queen. And we waited for hours, three, four, five hours, just waiting. And I'm falling asleep, standing up, and Melissa's slapping me. And then like, I'm trying to like, tap her face so you know, it's not a slap. And we got to stay awake, right? <laughs> we got to stay awake. And uh, we see like a practice run, some, some motorcycles, uh, police you know, motorcycles go by. I'm like, okay, something's going to happen. And then you see like a few cars drive by. And I was like, okay, okay, something's going to happen. And then uh, people start dispersing. Wait, what? 
I was like, officer, officer, what's happening? And he said, well, um, the queen was in one of those cars. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. She didn't roll down the window. I didn't see a hat. I didn't see a glove. I didn't see a wave. She was just in one of the six cars that drove through that I thought was like the practice round. No bombs, right? It's come on through. That's it? We were incredibly let down, and Melissa was like, I told you we should have gone to bed. <laughs> Fine. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. When the king returns, no one will miss him. He will come back in the same way that he left. He is the king of creation. And Christians worship the king of creation who sits in glory in heaven, not detached from this world. He's ruling over this world even now. All power, all authority, the scriptures say, belong to him. Which means, of course, that no purpose of his can be thwarted even if his purpose is to use people like you and me for the hope of the world. Frail and weak as we may be, don't you feel like that sometimes? Not put together, broken, sinful. I sin on purpose sometimes, right? Like nobody knows. Jesus intends to use people like you and me for his glory, for the good of this world. What this means is that if you trust in Jesus for your own healing, if you trust in Jesus for your own forgiveness, He intends to use you in the lives of others. What a glorious calling. What a dignifying calling that is, that God promises to use people who are imperfect for a perfect mission. It's His mission. It came from His mind. He knows everything. And in knowing everything and being able to do everything, right? Like there are no resources not at His disposal. The best of the best plan that He has is to use people like you and me. That's amazing. Last question. How is Jesus misunderstood? What has He done? What is He doing how is he misunderstood? You know the story. Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, victorious. And do you know that even though the linchpin of our salvation was accomplished by his death and resurrection, he's not finished working out our salvation? The, 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 the day of glory, the day of judgment has not yet come. We still wrestle with sin. He's going to change us in the twinkling of an eye, we read. He's going to use us for the redemption of the world. He's going to make this world the same and yet almost not recognizable because there will not be a hint of sin left when He comes back. Not a hint of brokenness, no earthquakes, hurricanes, no oppression, no lies, no betrayal, no lust, no, no discontentment. Everything will be the way that it is supposed to be. Where there is longing, there will be satisfaction. Not contentment, satisfaction. It'll be glorious. He raised from the, he's raised from the dead, and that promises us, it secures that He is going to finish what He started. And the disciples knew this was true in some sense. Verse 6, 
So when Jesus and his disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, we know that you have honored the Father perfectly. We know that you lived a perfect life. We know that you suffered and were tortured unjustly. We know that you died an ignoble death on a cross, but you defeated death when you were raised from the dead. We know that you're the king. We know that you're not finished. Will you now rule as king? Will you free us from the oppression of the Romans? Will you free us from the oppression of betrayal? Will you now set everything right? And Jesus gives them a complicated no. Verses 7 and 8, He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The disciples have good theology. They believe right things about Jesus. They get it. You're God. It has taken us a long time, but you are God. And you can do what you want to do when you want to do it. And you're going to make all things right. And Jesus is like, yep, 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 bingo. But they begin to misunderstand him. What is it going to look like for you to begin to make things right? Well, let's see. You're the king of the Jews, right? The king of our people. So doesn't it stand to reason that you would restore the Jewish kingdom to its long-lost prominence, where the nations bow before Israel? Shouldn't you restore us to all of our military and political might? And it makes sense for them to ask these questions. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but He's doing something they don't understand. He's the Messiah for the nations, for the world. And He intends to do His mission through the church before He comes back to judge the living and the dead. Jesus wants us to come to Him, and He wants us to ask for restoration. But what He's going to say to us is the same thing He said to them. What I have in mind is much bigger than what you have in mind. What I'm doing is not what you have in mind. My plans are bigger, they are grander, they are more wonderful than what you're asking for. Because we also wonder, Jesus, if we trust you, will you restore my kingdom? Will you make my world the way that I think my world should look? With my vision, and will you protect me from the betrayal of others and other bad things that happen in this world? Will you guarantee me a spouse and a job? Friends that are good to me and kind. People who get me. I don't have to be around people who don't. Jesus wants us to come to him to ask for restoration. He says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But what he's saying in this passage to the apostles is the same thing he says to us when we read it. We think about what it means to follow him and serve him. What I have in mind as far as restoration in your life, healing in your life, doesn't look exactly like what you think it should look like. When I was in college, I was trying to be an atheist. I had been raised in a you know, Christian-ish family. We were all, all sorts of messed up. It's kind of hard to split that up. 
And my parents were getting a divorce, and it was, it was ugly. My dad had had an affair, and I was sort of in the middle, and, and it was awful. And trying to be this, this atheist, and they finally got divorced. And it, I don't know, maybe if you've experienced this yourself, um, it's like a fundamental law of the universe has been broken. Like your parents are sort of a fundamental law of the universe to you. It's almost like someone's like, gravity, surprise, like it's over. You know, your parents, surprise, they're done. And so I was devastated, and, and, I, and I got pretty depressed for a while, and um, I began to pray for the first time in a long time to the God I had told others surely didn't exist. And I went to Him with my longing for my parents. And I went to Him with my longing with how my life was falling apart in so many different ways. And He began to work in me. You know what? He brought so much restoration in my life, and my parents never spoke to each other again. They wouldn't even get in the same picture at my wedding. Come on, stand in the picture on opposite sides. They wouldn't do it. Nothing good has happened between them ever since, and that's what I was asking for. That's the restoration. That's the longing I took before Jesus. And he says, I've got something better in mind. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to put your heart back together. I'm going to make it beat for me. I'm going to convert you. I'm going to help you to love me and love people. And you're going to give your life to the church. The healing I prayed for began to come, but it did not look anything like what I asked for. The disciples asked Jesus, will you fix Israel? And Jesus says, I'm going to fix something so much bigger. Than that, and it's not going to look the way you think it should. How are you going to do that, Jesus? You're going to be my witnesses, and wherever you go, you're going to point others to me. Why are we going to point them to you, Jesus? Because if you point them anywhere else, they will never be restored. He doesn't say that to put it all on you, he tells us you know where restoration comes from. Point others to restoration, and He's a person, and He's Jesus. If you put, when we point them other places, we're not helping. Now, some of us talk too much to people. We don't know how to listen. We need to learn how to listen. But if we only ever listen without pointing to Jesus, we're not pointing to restoration. And some of us like to fix people, and we should not try to fix people. We should encourage them with the person who fixes people. And maybe you're the kind of person who's like, oh, that's the way to fix people. That's a new way to fix people. That's not what I said, right? We're learning to point people to Jesus. You see, we often go to Jesus with our own idea of what wholeness must look like in our lives and the lives of somebody else. And instead, what we need to do is go to Jesus and say, you bring restoration as you see fit. You think bigger than I do. You see the bigger picture. You know me better than I do. Oh, right. And you are God. And you are good. Would you do with me what you will? Would you use me in your kingdom how you would? because you're gracious. And I'm so fixated on my brokenness and my longing and my kingdom, and that's not working out for me very well. You are our wholeness. And this is the point. Jesus is at work in and through his people. 
And his plan cannot fail. His plan will not fail. And his plan includes you and me and people like us encouraging others to believe that Jesus Christ is a person. That Jesus Christ knows us, will restore us, and will forgive us. Because our sins were held against him. They don't have to be held against him. He calls us to witness. And that's really what I hope that you find in RUF. Whether you've been coming for a while or this is your first time, you find a place where we learn to witness about Jesus to each other and receive that from each other. There's a mutual encouraging that wholeness comes from outside of this room from a real person who happens to be God, who is gracious and merciful. But for tonight, just know this. If you know the person of Jesus Christ, you know him by faith. He's not merely an idea. He's not merely a morality. He is a person, a relational being. And we get to be his witnesses. Which means he has uniquely equipped us to do what he's called us to do. To talk about him to share about Him. He's uniquely equipped us to do that. And you know what else He has uniquely equipped us to do? To deal with the wave of guilt that just washed over like three-fourths of us because it's like, I don't do that very well. He has uniquely equipped you to deal with that guilt because the Gospel says all of your brokenness including not wanting to talk about Jesus, being apathetic about your religion, the guilt that we have in that has been forgiven in Jesus Christ. He's that kind. He's that gracious. And if He's equipped us to deal with our guilt, He's equipped us to repent and to follow Him and to see that what's best for the world is never going to be void of Jesus. We don't want to force him into every conversation. That's fake. That's artificial. That's manipulative. I've said this before. We just don't want to force him out of the conversations where he's a natural fit. Where the way you see the world rubs up against the way somebody else sees the world. And it's like, oh, you think that your life depends on your GPA. Study hard, but there's a Savior that will save you from that bondage. You think your life depends on if that guy or if that girl calls you back. There's a Jesus who will save you from that. You think your life depends on the internship that you got, and you were so excited about it until you found out that somebody got the one you really wanted. Jesus will save you from that and call you into a kingdom that is bigger and better and is redeeming the world. When Jesus does return to judge the world one day, He's not going to ask you, did you share your faith enough? Did you talk about me to everyone you could? He's not going to ask that. He's going to ask whether or not His death and resurrection on a cross for you was enough. He'll ask if His love for us filled us with love for Him and others. Here's the thing, if you are moved even a little by the love of Jesus in your life, He is going to build in you a joy and an excitement for others to know the same Jesus. 
And part of that means really wanting them to know him. Really wanting them to know the love and the freedom that you have. Some of you don't know where to start. You can start by inviting people to your small group, or to a large group. You can start by inviting them to a group of you grabbing coffee in between classes. And maybe somebody talks about an answered prayer in your life after you've done it two or three times. Because you know what else Jesus has uniquely equipped you for? The awkwardness of asking somebody to join you to large group and them saying no, and then you realize all they said was no. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that, that we will be blessed if we are persecuted. We're not even anywhere near that. Someone just said no. No thanks. You know what? You can ask them again sometime, or you can ask somebody else. The point of Acts is not just that Jesus will restore the world one day. The point is also that He's restoring our hearts now. He's helping us to love God. He's helping us to love each other. And as this begins to grip you, as you begin to own this for your life, you begin to see how much Jesus has already worked in you. And it makes you want to talk about your faith even more. I'm not who I used to be. I can't believe it. I didn't realize until somebody said this in my life, but I am different, and I'm changing, and that's exciting to me. Would you like to hear about how I'm not like I used to be? And it's a privilege that he would use people like us in his kingdom. Let's thank him for that privilege now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ to be born as a baby, that wise men would worship, that we worship, uh, he's ascended into heaven. We thank you for your spirit who has equipped us to deal with our guilt and to point others to you. And so we ask that you would do that, that it wouldn't be just a rule or a task or a guilt, but that you would actually show us the joy in talking about you to others. We want to be your witnesses, so help us to do that, and thank you for calling us. Amen.